Welcome back into the Kamloops Alliance Church podcast. Thanks for joining us. The podcast is meant to provide you with excellent content that will equip you to follow Jesus well. These are raw and authentic conversations covering relevant and important topics pertaining to Kamloops Alliance and our mission, vision, and values. In our second episode, we hear from Chris Price. Chris Price is part of the launch team for a new and exciting church in Vancouver called The Way Church. Before joining this new church, Chris was the lead pastor at Calvary Baptist Church in Coquitlam, BC for 10 years. Chris has a master's degree from Trinity Western University in apologetics and has written extensively on the big questions and challenges to Christianity. He's married and has two kids. This episode is all about COVID-19, the presence and goodness of God, and the resources and answers Jesus brings in the middle of a global crisis. All right, uh, I am here with uh, Chris Price, um, a friend, a colleague, a, a fellow pastor. Uh, really excited to have him on uh, on the podcast uh, for this episode. Um, Chris, welcome. Oh, thanks so much for having me, man. It's great to see you uh, over the computer, obviously, and it's great to just be on. Yeah, thank you. Um, Chris, why don't you just uh, break the ice for us a little bit? Tell us kind of who you are, your family, uh, your ministry background, kind of educational background. Just just tell us about you and, and uh, your life. For sure, for sure. I'm 38 years old. Uh, I'm married to Deandra. We've been married for 11 years. We have two kids, Caden a boy who is nine and our daughter Mila, who is six years old, grade four, grade one, respectively. Uh, I've been a pastor for about 15 years. So I started pretty young and uh, I was a lead pastor of a church in Coquitlam, BC called Calvary, an amazing church uh, for 10 years. And then recently we resigned from there and we moved to Vancouver, BC to plant a church, start a new church. Along the way, I got a master's degree uh, in Christian studies with the specialization in apologetics, which is just kind of speaking in defense of the faith and answering objections to Christianity. So that's been my area of study and I really enjoy that. And yeah, now we're living in Vancouver, man, uh, trying to plant a church in this crazy time. Yeah. What an adventure for you guys. Totally. Yeah. So the connection between Chris and I was, I was working literally just down the street at Coquitlam Alliance and, uh, and Chris was at Calvary. And so we would hang out, uh, have coffee, breakfast, kind yeah. of here and there and everywhere. And um, I'll just I'll just brag about you just for a minute, Chris. Chris has got to be one of the best pastors I know. He He's kind of like the, you know, you have like triple threat athletes or football players, you know, they can tackle and run and catch. And I just, Chris, when I when I think of you, I just think you're such a great pastor. You you have a strong mind. You, you love like crazy. You love the church really well. Great preacher. Like you're just, you're one of the best pastors I know. So I'm so grateful that oh. you spent some time with me today. Man, that's so kind of you to say. And the feeling's mutual, dude, for sure. All right. Awesome. Um, so what we wanted to, to, to talk about today is just kind of, as Chris mentioned, uh, his, his um, emphasis in apologetics and, and kind of thinking deeply about our faith. And I, I think now's a time where people are thinking deeply in general uh, yeah. and especially, especially about, about Christianity. And so, um, you know, oftentimes we think of, you know, apologetics or defense of the Christian faith in kind of a cold, cold, argumentative mm-hmm. reason type 
like logic way, but, but we don't right. want that to happen here. We, we really want this to be pastoral, don't we? Yes, for sure. And I think that that is, that is a key thing, especially when it comes to trials and sufferings and difficulties, you can't just have a rigid, cold intellectual approach. It's for many of us, an emotional existential problem that needs pastoral care more than it needs rigorous philosophical reasoning. And so definitely that's, that's been my bent uh, in regards to the whole way along just as a pastor, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Awesome. Um, So uh, first, first kind of question here. Um, uh, there's a there's an article released this week, so this is like real time uh, as things are progressing here uh, in in time. It was online and it was written by a, a really really well known professor, a New Testament scholar. His name is N. T. Wright. So if, if you are uh, kind of knowledgeable about the theological world, you would have uh, understood or heard of N. T. Wright before. But he he released an article, uh, and the title of the article was this: Christianity offers no answers about the coronavirus. It's not supposed to. Um, Chris, did, did you read the article? Uh, I, I skimmed it. I think in some ways, like he does have a line like that in it. It's a bit of hyperbole by, I think, the, the publisher. Yeah. Uh, but I did read it, read it, sorry. And I think there were some really key helpful insights, specifically around the aspect of lament as a big part of the biblical tradition, uh, that we have a book called Lamentations in Scripture. When we think of the Psalms, our gymnasium of prayer, our hymn book, a large percentage of those are laments. Psalm 88 ends, darkness is my closest friend. I mean, that's pretty that's pretty bleak, right? Uh, or we have like Job's friends before they open their mouths and ruin everything. They see Job and his suffering and they sit with him for days just in silence, mourning, weeping, lamenting, with him. And so we have this kind of strain throughout scripture, even Jesus referred to as a man of sorrows, where lament is a part of our tradition that we need to create space for. And uh, lament happens when, whenever there is loss. And so you think culturally what's happening right now, uh, people are losing loved ones or jobs or the ability to see their grandchildren or the ability to enjoy some of the freedoms we've taken for granted. And so in the midst of that loss, there needs to be space for lament. Um, I was reading this article actually by a guy named David Kessler, and he was actually saying that a lot of the discomfort we're feeling culturally is actually a collective grief, which is similar to lament. And, you know, we all have heard of the five stages of grief. They're not sequential, but there are things that we go through, phases we go through, like, uh, you know, denial or anger or bargaining or depression and then acceptance. And what's fascinating about our moment, if you think about it, is that people, their response to what's going on fits in a lot of these categories. So like early on, I mean, this was me a bit. People were in denial. Oh, it's not this is not going to be a big deal. You know, it's just the media hyping it up. It's clickbait. It's all those things, you know? And then all of a sudden we're like, Oh, it is, it is a big deal. So we come out of denial. Uh, some of us were in an anger stage right now. Right. For good reason. We're just angry. And maybe our anger, we don't even know quite where to direct it. Maybe it's just going everywhere. We're just frustrated. Uh, others of us are in like, like my wife, it was so interesting early on. She's like, okay, we're just going to be really strict. We're not going to see anyone and if we're really strict then maybe in two weeks this will be this will pass and it's like this bargaining like if i do this this will happen right and then people are just legitimately depressed 
Uh, and these phases are not sequential, right? We come in and out of them. And I think it's important to acknowledge that as a culture and as individuals, we are experiencing grief. We're grieving the loss of a way of life, even temporarily. And so we need to create space for grief. We need to create space for lament. We need to be gracious to one another in that, especially because we're all maybe at different stages of experiencing the grief and so just that acknowledgement is powerful um and the fact that our tradition you know creates space for that is a beautiful thing in this moment and we need to lean hard into that i know some people you know we've been sold a bill of goods almost like people told us if you follow jesus life will be amazing and they forgot to add after you die uh, because until then, there's going to be some really hard things that happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jesus said, in this world, we'll have trouble. Mm-hmm. And then he said, take heart, I've overcome the world. So there's our hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, hope is only really weighty and has gravitas if we're willing to acknowledge the hard things and the grief and the lament. And so N.T. Wright's article was helpful just highlighting this this issue of lament. And saying mm-hmm. we need to get better at that as an evangelical church. We haven't been that good. Uh, even in our songwriting, the disproportionate amount of, of happy, clappy songs we've written compared to what you see in the Psalms. And so this is a, a corrective, I think, in this moment. That's really helpful because I, I think there's almost this um, false positivism that we can we can adopt that, you know, mm-hmm. God, God, you know, through Jesus has made our lives amazing. And, and we have this joy. And whereas I, and I think you're right. I think that article was just helpful to say, it's okay to feel sad and it's okay mm-hmm. to lament. And, and mm-hmm. to be a human is to actually do that and to engage in that. So I think that's a good, good place to, to start when we talk about suffering is that, you know what? You need to feel it because it is hard and it is different. And we're all, as you said, as a collective society, not even just, you know, followers of Jesus, but mm-hmm. as a collective society, there's this sense of, wow, we have lost so much. So, yeah. and, um, and, you know, nothing, nothing we would want to say would want to minimize that exactly. or dismiss that or yeah. shove that underground. We need, we do need to feel that and acknowledge that. Yeah, no, thank you. That's good. So you've, uh, you're, you're just, we're going to talk about it at the end, but you're, you're just going to release a book that, that you've written a chapter on. I know that you've also written an, an entire book on suffering. So, um, why out of all topics, um, would you, would you want to pick that? Why the interest in this topic specifically? Yeah, it's, it's a strange one to, gravitate towards in a lot of ways. I think I became a Christian at age 20 and uh, a couple of things happened even right around that time of my life that might've pointed me in this direction. So when I was 19, lost a good friend in a tragic accident. Uh, this is before I became a Christian, but that hit us hard as a friend group. Um, right around the time where I was considering like, you know, should I follow Jesus or not? And the Holy Spirit was at work kind of drawing me right in that time. My best friend's mom had cancer and my best friend was a Christian. So was her mom. They were kind of witnessing to me. And, and during that season, her mom passed away and I was in the hospital rooms and I was journeying with them through that whole experience. And I actually became a Christian right around the week that she passed away. And so suffering and loss and heartache and bad things happening was all a part of my pre-conversion data. Like I'd factored that in before I became a Christian. And so after I became a Christian, those things didn't rock my faith. You know what I mean? 
But there is a difference between knowing about that intellectually and experiencing it yourself. And there's a difference between knowing about that intellectually and walking with people through some real heartbreak and tragedies. And because I was a pastor so young, and because I was a pastor of a church that was intergenerational, all ages, and several hundred people, I really had the opportunity and the privilege of walking with people through some of the darkest seasons of their lives. And I realized that this is a moment and this is a space where people are grasping for meaning. Uh, This is a space where people sometimes struggle emotionally and intellectually. If God is good, if God is powerful, if God loves me, why is he allowing me to experience these things? And so I was just walking. And so I'm like, this needs my attention. Uh, And so I just spent time on it, uh, both pastorally, practically, and then also philosophically. Yeah, that's good. Um, I I did read your your book on suffering, the whole thing. And I just kind of highlighted your your chapter in in your new book that you're an editor and releasing soon. You you talk about um, in in this chapter, responding to suffering as people are going through like, not just the intellectual grappling with it, but the real life experience. You talk about the ministry of presence, uh, mm-hmm. of being being with each other, uh, and how powerful that is. Um, wh- my, my question and my curiosity is, what does that look like right now for the church to give each other, for people to give each other the ministry of presence, but but not actually be able to be present with one another? Like, how how, how do you see the church practicing that in, in this time? Yeah. The, uh, yeah. If I, can I just backtrack for, for a second and say why that was yep. a, such a powerful idea for me? Yeah, uh, sure. There's a lot of reasons, but I'll give just two. I read a study on pain endurance that a university did where they had people. It's kind of interesting. They had them come into a room by themselves and stand in a bucket of ice to see how long they could endure the freezing cold and the pain. And then they did it again and they allowed the person to have a loving friend with them in the room. And across the board, it doubled the amount of pain the person could endure. And that was their conclusion. And I'm like, oh, there's something so powerful about people being with us, even if they don't have answers, even if they don't know what to say, even if they just sit and show up, there is such power to that. And then I thought, oh, Jesus in the incarnation, I mean, God in Jesus entered into our suffering rather than shying away. I mean, he suffered because of us, obviously, for our sins, but he also suffered with us. And so he practiced the ministry of presence as well. And so that to me is this powerful idea. The challenge is in our moment and in our time, we can't actually be with one another other than our immediate nuclear family or housemates. And so I think what we have to do is practice disembodied presence. It's not the best but it's the best we have in this moment. So it's like we, we should be practicing physical distancing, but not social distancing. We right. actually need to amp up social connection in these times. And that's the gift of words and the gift of technologies. Uh, and I think there's so many ways that the church is being creative in this moment. Uh, it's not the best, but it's the best we can do. And so people are, are getting on FaceTime. They're getting on Zoom. We're moving small groups online. We're adding small groups and points of connection, prayer meetings in the morning so that people get to see 
people's faces, not just hear words, but see faces, see body language. It's not quite the same, but it's the best we've got. I've seen other people do creative things about uh, like as a church, uh, even though we're not really full up and running yet, we're going to be writing letters to uh, seniors and old folks homes who could feel very isolated in these moments. Uh, churches can do that. I heard another story of my wife's friend. This is so cool. Other 11 year old daughter uh, loves birthdays and, you know, loves having parties. And many of us do. And that's man, weddings getting canceled parties. My, my mother-in-law is turning 70 today and she retired from her job yesterday. We can't even be with her. Right. So that's tough. So this girl's 11. She's like, Oh, I'm, you know, I, I love parties and she's so sad, but her neighborhood created a Facebook group. And this is amazing what they did. They all made posters, huge posters, wishing her a happy birthday. And then her mom drove her around the block and they saw 25 different houses, just these huge posters, wishing her well, wishing her happy birthday. She felt so loved, so like a part of something. It was just this beautiful moment of creativity. And so I think we need to practice and be even more intentional now about disembodied presence, about practicing social connection and physical distancing uh, and getting really creative. And so you've probably got stories of things you're doing. I know people are doing grocery shopping for people who are immune compromised. I know churches are doing that. Um, And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's not the best, but it's the best we have, you know? (laughs) Totally. And, and I think, I think what, what resonated with what you said is like, you know, the, this, the, the physical distancing, but not social distancing. And I, you know, I know as a church, like we're, we're, we're calling every single family in our database, like just mm-hmm. to check in. And, and I, I think the, just the space to listen to people too, you know, it's, it's a ministry yeah. of presence, words and, and, and listening. So um, as, as we kind of move from this, like feeling experience of, of suffering right now, um, you know, the, the, um, the question, I mean, I've received as a, as a pastor is how, how can we reconcile God's goodness and the trials and the suffering that we face? You know, we, uh, we invited our church to do an ask anything, which, um, we're going to engage with. And one of the questions from that ask anything was, does suffering come directly from God's hand or does he just allow it as a part of the way the universe is ordered? So, so first question would be how, how, Chris, how can we reconcile God's goodness and the trials and sufferings? that we face like as we kind of move more into a intellectual approach or perspective on this how how do we do that Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's a huge huge question there's a lot of landmines in it i think uh especially when we're talking about sovereignty and, and free will and human responsibility and god being in control and stuff but to, to zero in on the the last thing you mentioned there how we reconcile these things there are two answers that have a long history in the church i'm going to mention them and then we'll forget them and i'll go to where i want to go uh one is this idea of free will and saint augustine at least early in his ministry and thinking talked about god giving us the gift of freedom which allows for love and and morality and virtue to be possible but we can misuse that gift adam and eve did leads to fracturing in our relationship with God and even in some ways affects the the material cosmos and we live in a fallen, broken world as a result where things are not the way they ought 
to be. And I think there's resonance, at least with some of that in our day, like anyone who's ever voted or protested or wrote a rant on Facebook complaining, there's a sense in which they're saying the way the world is, is not the way it ought to be, uh, that there is a brokenness in creation. And, and some thinkers have traced that all the way back to this rebellion uh, in the garden. Uh, misusing the gift of freedom. Uh, there's another response that goes back to, I think, Irenaeus in the early church um, called the soul-making theodicy. Theodicy is just a compound of two Greek words justifying the ways of God to people. And it just talks about the value that is produced and the good that results from the crucible of of suffering. And there is some biblical resonance there, like in James, where he talks about trials, testing our faith, leading to perseverance, leading to maturity, leading to growth, these types of ideas, God bringing good out of evil, Joseph saying what you intended for evil, God intended for good and the saving of many lives, this idea that God can do good or bring good out of bad, this kind of stuff. Um, But where I tend to go, because I think we're feeling it, you know, not just intellectually and those answers can feel dry or inconsiderate or all those things is, is we're really trying emotionally to hold together God's power, God's love and the experience of suffering and evil. Cause those things feel like they're pulling apart and they're pulling us apart. And we right. feel that in our emotions. And the question then becomes what can hold it together? Right. And different worldviews try to answer that. Some go, well, there is no God. Some go, well, there is no evil. Uh, like some Eastern worldviews, good, evil, right. illusory, the material world, illusory, atheism, well, there is no God. And so people are all trying to deal with it. And so the person of Jesus, I think, is the key. Because evil suffering is deeply personal, uh, personal, and I think the answer can't be a philosophy. It has to be a person. And for us, it's the person of Jesus. And so the fact that Jesus was willing to die or the fact that Jesus died tells us that sin and and suffering and evil is very real. It's real. The fact that he was willing to die, no one took his life from him. He willingly laid it down. The fact that he was willing to die shows us that the love of God is real. God the Father sent the Son in love. The Son laid down his life in love. The Holy Spirit pours that love into our hearts, testifying that we're children of God, right? The fact that Jesus died shows us sin and evil that he was willing to die shows us God's love is real. And the fact that Jesus conquered the grave shows us that God's power is real, stronger than even the grave. And so really it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that allow us to hold together the reality of God's power, God's love and suffering and evil like nothing else does. And so when we ask the question, like, why are we going through Uh, the thing we're going through, we might not get an answer, but as Tim Keller says, we know what the answer can't be. It can't be that God doesn't love us. It can't be that God doesn't care for us because he has shown us his love, his care, and his concern on the cross. Or I love how the Catholic philosopher Peter Kreef puts it. He says, a lot of these attempted explanations, it feels like they're trying to get God off the hook for suffering to get God off the hook for it all. But the God of the Bible actually puts himself on the hook of suffering for you and for I to suffer with us, to suffer for us, to suffer because of us, and to one day take all suffering away from us. Think of how powerful it is that Jesus shed tears on earth so that he could wipe away our tears in heaven. He suffered 
on earth so that he could one day make all things new for us. And what I love about the Christian answer is that it plays itself out, not in this abstract realm of ideas, but in the dirt and grime and pain of human history. God plants a flag in his son and says, hey, I am with you. I'm for you and suffering and evil will not get the last word. Love will. Oh man. That was a bit of a preach, bro. Sorry. Oh dude, come on. That was amazing. No, it's, it's so, it's so helpful. Um, It's so helpful because as you said, Every everyone like you know, the, the evil and suffering is the hardest philosophical question for any worldview to answer, including Christianity. But at the at the heart of of Christianity is the God who suffers. So how does how does Jesus's suffering change the way that we understand and, and experience suffering? Like if if as you said, like it's the bedrock of Christianity, historical event, death, resurrection. How how does that change, or what is that? What resources does that give? to a follower of Jesus in the midst of their suffering? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, that's a great question. Um, And I think it's probably different for, it's so multifaceted and it's so, it does so many things that it probably does different things for different people depending on how they're suffering. But I would say it tells us that we're not alone that the God of the universe is with us where it hurts most. And there's power in that kind of solidarity. We experience that with other humans, right? The ministry of presence can endure more with loving people. Well, this is the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who sees the beginning from the end, the one who holds your life in his hands. He is with you in it. I mean, that's pretty powerful. Um, It's like believing actually that God loves you. It's like we allow people's opinions and perspectives to label us and determine our value and become the lenses through which we view ourselves. Well, hey, the one whose opinion matters most in the end loves you. Like that changes everything. And, And that's the one who's also with you. I also think too, when we don't know why we're going through what we're going through, uh, it can be hard to, to trust God. Uh, but I think the death and resurrection of Jesus allows us to reestablish that trust, even in the unknowing. And that's hugely important to suffer. Well, I think the other thing that, okay, so here's the other thing that I think is important, uh, with the death and resurrection of Jesus, because when Jesus died, um, the disciples, they scattered because they didn't have categories to understand his teaching on, Hey, I'm going to rise again. They didn't, they didn't never got that. Um, and so he died and they scattered. And I always try to put myself in their perspective and go, man, how tempting, like how would they have felt? Like we gave up three years of our lives. We gave up our livelihoods to follow you. How disappointed would they be? God, we thought you were the one to redeem Israel through Jesus. And now he's dead, which makes us think he's under your curse and abandoned by you. Like what is going on and how tempting would it have been to cast a vote on God's character in that moment? Oh God, you must not be powerful. God, you must not be with Jesus. God, you must not be good. But they didn't know a Sunday was coming, but it was coming. Right. Uh, And Jesus would resurrect and it would change the view of the Friday completely and utterly. And so I do think that that is important when we reflect on Jesus and what we're going through, not to minimize the difficulty of the current moment. 
but to recognize that a Sunday is coming for every believer in this life or the next one. And that allows us to journey with such hope. Um, and it allows us to believe that, hey, if God could bring good out of the evil Joseph experienced and God could bring good out of the evil Jesus experienced, bringing the greatest good out of the greatest evil, crazily enough, through Jesus, then how potentially God will bring good out of this situation in my life if I'm patient and I wait for it. Uh And that thought gives us hope. Um, And that thought's powerful, man, because it's not just what happens to us. Uh, There's a lot of research that shows it's not what happens to us that sinks us. It's how we think about what happens to us. And one of the things that allows us to suffer well is meaning. So Viktor Frankl, the famous psychiatrist who survived the concentration camps, he had this equation. It was like S minus M equals D. So suffering minus meaning equals despair. He said meaning is key. And I think to recognize that God can bring good out of bad and even do good things in our lives through the hard things gives us a meaning. Now, if I'm walking with people, I can't impose that meaning on anyone. They need to to discover that in their interaction and in their wrestling with God uh, over time. But I do think that the cross gives us that perspective as well, that that Friday never gets the last word for the believer. There's mm-hmm. always a which gives hope. That's good. I, I, I preached on James 1, 1 to 8 uh, last weekend. And I just I just zoned in on the idea, you know, James starts by saying, consider. He doesn't mm. say like, he doesn't say like, feel your way through this. He says, you need to, you need to rearrange the way that you're thinking about your current moment, your current trial, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I, I think, I think, you know, emotions are, are powerful. They, they, they bring us and usher us into reality and reality is where we find God. Mm-hmm. But, it, but the invitation is, is to consider. And I, and I think that's, that's kind of what we're talking about. So as, as we talk yeah. about Jesus and his suffering, what difference does Jesus make in our current trial with COVID-19? Like how, how, how does, how does he speak into this moment with us, uh, especially in, uh, in the developed Western country like Canada, where, you know, I can go to the grocery store and get whatever I want. I can watch any show that I want. I can, I, I can do whatever I want. And now all of a sudden, some of those abilities are taken away from us. What difference does Jesus make in, in, in this trial with COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, I think all the the difference in the world, uh, I think that for those who are really feeling the loss of the season, whether it's relationally or financially or or just emotionally, I think that that Jesus is with you and he understands that and the heart of God is is for you in those moments uh, in a way that doesn't kind of minimize what you're going through. I think uh, there's that beautiful moment. Uh, Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus, but he sees the distress of the people and it says he weeps. And um, that's a powerful moment. Jesus wept. And I feel like that's the heart of God in the season for those who are struggling and to know that's power, powerful. I think that Jesus, um, Obviously, again, hope is just a key thing uh, in this moment. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said that our hope is rooted in the fact that God can bring good out of bad. The ultimate good things can't be taken away. Our inheritance as children of God 
and the best things are yet to come. And if you consider those three things in this COVID-19 thing, there's abundant reason to have hope. And I think that we have a tendency towards worry and Jesus is teaching on, on worry. Do not worry about anything. Do not be anxious for anything is a key passage in Matthew six to be reflecting on. Like worry looks into the future and predicts bad things. It's actually the opposite of hope. Hope looks into the future and anticipates good things. Uh, Worry allows tomorrow to steal strength from today. Whereas hope allows tomorrow to provide strength for today. And I think in this moment as followers of Jesus, we can feel all the feels and we need to acknowledge our lament and our grief and our sorrow because only then does the hope seem credible and real that yes that god is still with us he's still for us he can bring good out of bad the ultimate good things can't be taken and the best things are actually yet to come and this won't last forever but god's love and his presence in your life will continue and so i think jesus tells us all of those things um yeah i i but i don't think how do i say this I don't think Jesus, like the church has been through so many things, persecutions and plagues, and this is unique for our generation. I don't think we've experienced anything like this, but Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I wonder if he just has the same thing. The stuff I'm saying I could say in the 12th century or in the 15th century it's yeah. not a, a new message, but it's a true message, which is why it's still new and still relevant uh, yeah. to us today. Um, and I, I do also think that, hey, this is a moment where we need to recognize that some of us have been trained to think that that life is about being comfortable, living our best life now. And the only way you can live your best life now is if you don't go to heaven, right? Like that's not a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh God's not very concerned about our comfort. He's concerned about our character. And so this is a moment to press in to the things of God. This is a moment to allow God to reveal idols in our hearts. This is a moment to go, how do I need to depend more deeply on God than ever before? Um, And I, so I I do think it's a moment like that for us as well. Um, So yeah, I'm, all over the place on that thinking on my feet, man. That's no, it's good. Okay, no. Hear your no, no. It, I, I think, I, I think, I think you're right on. And uh, I love, I love what you said about, about hope and, and the, the contrast with worry mm. and, and how, you know, Jesus is our living hope. Like th- this is an event that, that took place more than 2000 years ago. But it's it's still as powerful today uh, as it was in the in the in the Middle Ages, as it was in the first few hundred years of church history and the plagues that happened then. Like, and, and I I think we have such a robust history as followers of Jesus, and and we can look back at the way that people have suffered and see mm-hmm. that Jesus does make all the difference in the world to mm-hmm. offer you know stability and security and peace. And at the same time, the ability to grieve and to lament and to not have this false positivism. I think I think it is the best. Jesus is the best resource uh, because he is God. He is Lord yeah. and, and 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 promises uh, us his presence in, in the highest times and, and in the lowest. So I think you're right on, man. Yeah. And I love that we started with lament and grief because I actually don't think until you feel that and acknowledge that 
the hope will be real yeah. and credible and have gravitas. It yeah. will just seem like a false positivism or an yeah. attempt to like not want to enter into someone else's difficulty. Yeah. Right. right. Um, and so, yeah, both those things. Um, good. Sure. That's so good. Hey, uh, just as we uh, kind of close up here, tell me more about your church plant, Chris. Um, when is it launching? What do you pray God's going to do through the way? I know that you've teamed up with some other great leaders too. Tell us about kind of all like that team, your, your hope, your vision. How can we, uh, uh, for the church in Kamloops be, be praying for you guys as you go on this journey? Yeah. Uh, oh man, I love that question. And there's so much to say, uh, church planning is it's been on my heart for ages. Every church in existence was once planted. And, uh, I believe church planning is an effective means of reaching people far from God, which is what we want to do. And so I'm, I'm partnering with, uh, Good friends of mine, guys, you know as well, uh, Jason Ballard and Jeremy King. We've all been in ministry for a while. We've done ministry together. And we really felt before God called us even to a city or an area, we felt like God called us together almost in a covenantal friendship to say, yeah, we're going to link arms and join hearts to do something together for the kingdom, for the gospel, uh, in ministry. And so... After that moment, we really felt led to the city of Vancouver, which I believe is the most secular in North America. Uh, it's like a never-Christian city in a post-Christian culture. It's an expensive city. It's a city that's beautiful and glorious and has the mountains and the waters and all you could ask for, but doesn't have uh, a large percentage of the population that goes to church. And there are beautiful and amazing churches in Vancouver who've been doing amazing ministry for years and they've all been so hospitable to us, but we're, we're saying, yeah, there's still a huge need there. So we're going to plant a church uh, in Vancouver as a team right now we're in launch, like the phase of growing and building a launch team that, uh, and we're going to start our services publicly in, in September. And we're just hoping that we, by God's grace, can plant a church that plants churches, that we can plant a church that raises up young leaders and empowers them to serve the broader church. We're hoping to plant a church that captures the hearts and minds of the upcoming uh, a generation. We're hoping to plant a church that reaches people far from, from God. We want to see many, many people encounter the love of Jesus and have their lives changed and their families changed and their legacies changed. We want to see renewal happen in our city. We want to see an increase in mercy and justice. We want all of those things, things that, you know, a lot of us are all leaning into. Uh, and that's what we're believing God for. And so right now, We've got uh, about 80 adults on our launch team. We're hoping to grow that to 120 by September. And, and we've got, I think, over 20 kids involved already. And so we're, we're steadily building towards a, a strong launch. Hopefully right now we're obviously online, but we're just praying, uh, you know, you can just pray into all those things. Uh, yeah. Provision financially, uh, that God would be drawing people to himself, that he'd be drawing the right people to the launch team, that as leaders, we would have wisdom, uh, that we would empower, that we would trust, but that we would also be wise. Um, and that we just remain faithful. Um, the culture and the city has a seductive pull so that we just be faithful to God, faithful to scripture, lift up the name of Jesus, but also be 
you know, accessible to the city and love the city and live for the good of the greater city. Um, so that's awesome. Yeah, that was just like an unfiltered rant from my heart. So man, I, I just I just love it. And I I I think, you know, with you, Jason and Jeremy, like this all-star team of just super gifted, humble, connected uh leaders. Um man, Vancouver needs it. So I love I love your courage to and your heart to to do it. So uh, you can count on us as a church here at Kamloops Alliance to pray for you guys and just awesome. be behind you as you're doing it. Yeah. Uh, just one last thing quickly. You're releasing a new book uh, that you wrote a chapter and we referenced it. Uh, what What is the book's title? What's it about? Where can people get it? When can people get it? Sure. Yeah, it's called uh, Everyday Apologetics. It's edited by Paul Chamberlain, who's a prophet Trinity and myself. And it's a collection actually of Canadian voices. And uh, yeah, like I, I think I said, it's it's called Everyday Apologetics. And so it's answering objections that people have to the Christian faith. But what you find in this type of literature is that often the answers are pretty intellectual. They're pretty heady. They assume a background in philosophy or biology or history, which a lot of us don't have. Uh, and a lot of everyday people just don't engage on that level. And so we wanted to create a resource that answers the big questions like, hey, it seems God's really violent in the Old Testament. Hey, what about evil and suffering? Hey, how do I navigate questions with my skeptical colleagues? And, and so we wanted to answer those things, but a lot of stories, a lot of illustrations, you know, and a bent towards the practical, which is very r- rare to find in this genre of, okay. of literature. So it's called Everyday Apologetics. Um, Canadian authors. Um, it comes out on Amazon May 5th. Okay. The, awesome. The launch date, release date. Yeah. Fantastic. Again, another great resource for the church. So thanks for being a part of that, Chris. Oh, yeah. No problem. And uh, thanks for being a part of this uh, this interview. Really helpful content. Um, great to chat today. Yeah, great to be here, man. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us and tuning into Chris and Chris. Make sure you tune in next week as Pastor Chris interviews the pastors and ministry leaders at Kamloops Alliance Church. You'll hear the new ministry and ways our church is launching and the unique opportunities this season has brought to us. You'll be encouraged to hear of the ways that God is using our church right now to meet needs, make disciples, and encourage people in their faith. The episode is fun, encouraging, insightful, and informational as you get to go behind the curtain to hear all of the ways KAC has pivoted to ensure that we know Jesus and make him known. Thanks again for joining us and have a great week.